A.W. Tozer once wrote this famous line. He wrote, the most important thought you have is what you think when you think about God. The most important thought you will ever have is what you think when you think about God. And for one, I think that he is right. Because what we think when we think about God impacts every area of our lives. For example, it impacts our relationships because whether or not we believe God exists and the kind of God that we believe exists will impact how we see other people who are made in God's image with worth and value and dignity. Whether we believe God exists or not and the kind of God we believe exists affects our hobbies because how heavily the glory of God weighs on us will impact how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we daydream, what we think about, what we desire and long for. What we think about when we think about God impacts the way we eat and take care of our bodies because what we believe about God's design and God's ownership of ourselves will impact how we approach life decisions like food and exercise, lifestyle. It impacts the music we listen to. It impacts the books that we read. It impacts the ways we give and we spend our money. Because at the root of all of that is this very fundamental question. In fact, I would argue perhaps the most fundamental question we will ever ask, and that is, who is God And what is God like? And so this morning, we're continuing this six-week mini-series we began last week. We're calling this CCF's Vision and Values. And so the goal of this series is to clarify and to remind ourselves of who we are as a church and why we exist What's important as we seek to be about the mission of our triune God? And so last week, we spent time looking at Matthew chapter 28 and how our mission statement as a church grows out of the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations. And then for the next four weeks following this morning, we're going to be looking at our five priorities uh, as a church. And these are not unique to us. They're really priorities that exist for every faithful church around the globe. So what we're trying to offer over these weeks is not something that's unique or earth-shattering or proprietary, but rather what we share in alignment with every other faithful church on earth throughout the history of the New Testament church. But our purpose in going through this and our purpose in taking a break through our series in Luke, which we've been going through and we'll return to here in a month or so, our purpose is to remind ourselves this is what the church of Jesus Christ is and this is why we exist. This is what we're about. This is what's important to kind of bring us all on the same page. And so this morning, we begin with our number one priority, which is a priority we call God-exalting. And we're going to spend most of our time here in Isaiah chapter 6. Now, let me set up the book of Isaiah like this. Long before Isaiah's time, God had promised his people in Deuteronomy chapter 4 that if they were faithful, he would bless them. 
But if they turned away from him, he would give them over to their sin. And this is foundational to understand because God's people in the Old Testament, the Israelites, unfortunately did turn away from following God. They chose to worship and serve and seek their identity in other things. So tragically, God allowed them, gave them over to their sin. But God didn't leave them there. He also raised up prophets, and Isaiah was one of those prophets. In fact, 800 years after God warned Israel in Deuteronomy 4, 800 years later, God raised up Isaiah as a prophet. And he gave Isaiah a series of messages for God's people, specifically warning them of their sin and of God's looming judgment in hopes and with the purpose of turning them back away from their sin, back to trust in the Lord God. And that's the purpose of Isaiah's ministry, essentially, if we were to kind of boil it down. Now, Isaiah's ministry really began with this experience in Isaiah chapter 6 that Tara read for us this morning, this experience we are going to look at. And this is fundamental to understand because Isaiah's ministry is going to kind of springboard out of what happened here in Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 7. So the year is 740 B.C. And King Uzziah, the king of Judah, has died. His reign was long. In fact, the nation prospered under his leadership. But near the end of his life, 2 Chronicles chapter 26 tells us that Uzziah grew proud of his achievements. And he stopped honoring God as God. And he stopped exalting God, which eventually led to his own destruction. And so for the Israelites, or for those in Judah, the people of Judah, King Uzziah's death was a time of great uncertainty. The king who had reigned for a long time, under whom the nation had prospered, had just died. And they're not living in a culture in a time where there are always peaceful transitions of power from one leader to the next. So they're not sure what's going to happen. They're not sure who's going to be king next. They're not sure if there's going to be a revolt or there's going to be a bloody coup as different various warring people try to take the throne. And so there's a great deal of uncertainty. And now... We, here in 2023, don't live in a culture exactly like Old Testament Judah. But a quick glance on cable news or a quick glance through the newspaper or your news app on your phone can demonstrate for us all, right, that we live in a time of uncertainty. There's wars going on. There's famine and starvation that exists. There's political uncertainty. There's national and ethnic uncertainty around the globe. What's going to happen with this country? What if this country attacks this country? What if this country gets more powerful? Not to mention the event next fall that we're all excited about, which is another presidential election, right? And so if you add all of that together, we live in a time where there's an amount of uncertainty as to what's going to happen Next, what's going to happen in the future? And what we need today is what God gives to Isaiah here in chapter 6, which isn't a promise of national blessing. And God doesn't give Isaiah even a promise of health or financial stability in the midst of crisis. 
Rather, what God gives to Isaiah is himself. And Isaiah's life will never be the same. Let's watch how this unfolds. If you're taking notes this morning, we'll have four kind of primary points, which hopefully will be obvious from the text. First, notice God begins by giving Isaiah first a picture of glory. A picture of glory. Look at verse 1. Word of the Lord says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So in the very year that a great earthly king died, God gives Isaiah a picture of another king, a more powerful, a more glorious king. In fact, just look at the references to royalty here. Isaiah sees the Lord sitting on a throne, which is where a king would sit. He's high and lifted up. In fact, he's so high that everything else essentially is beneath him. He's on an elevated throne, demonstrating his power and his authority. Earthly kings would also wear ornate robes with long flowing trains off the back, similar to kind of a train on a wedding dress. The, the more authority, the more power, the more wealth that that king had, usually the longer the train would be. But notice the, the size or the length of this king's train. It fills the temple. In, and in Isaiah's time, as a king would sit on a throne with the train of his robe around him, there would often be court officials who were there who were paid to essentially sing and recite and sometimes through poetry declare the good things that the king had done. It was like the king hired his own fanboys to stand around him and to declare how great and magnificent and wonderful he is. And, and that's sort of what's happening here. But notice, this is not a king who needs an ego boost. Rather, what Isaiah sees are not just paid court officials, but he sees angels who we know from the book of Revelation can't help but to continually cry out about the holiness of God. And these aren't just any angels. These, have angels, these angels have six wings, which I take to mean they have incredible power and what are they doing? According to verse 2, two of their wings are covering their face. Two wings are covering their feet. They're, they're almost shielding themselves from the radiance of the glory of the holiness of this God. And they are calling to one another in continual refrain, holy, holy Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The ESV study Bible note I think is helpful here. 
It says, even perfect superhuman creatures like these angels humble themselves before the all-holy God. And so the message is clear. The Lord God of the universe is so much greater than any king or any monarch or any president or any official. He is the one for whom even the most powerful angels in all of heaven bow down in humility. Now we can go a little further here because hundreds of years later, Jesus speaking to a group of people in John chapter 12, verse 41, tells us that what Isaiah saw here wasn't just the triune God, but but Jesus tells the crowd in John 12, 41 that what Jesus saw here was actually himself, was Jesus Christ. This helps to reinforce the fact that Jesus wasn't a man who became God, nor was God the Son somehow created. No, Jesus is, as Hebrews 1 teaches us, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Isaiah sees Jesus, and he's overcome by what he sees. But he's also overcome by what he hears because this is not only a picture of glory, what he sees, but secondly, this is a message of holiness that he hears. Again, look at verse three. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth Is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah hears this message of holiness even as he's witnessing with his eyes this picture of glory. And the message is holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, holiness means to be set apart. It means to be completely different than everything else. It also means to be perfect. It means to be flawless. It means to be without sin. And these angels don't just declare, holy is the Lord, or holy, holy is the Lord, but they declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Repeating That word holy three times is like saying he is the most holiest of all, completely, totally, entirely, unequally holy in everything. In fact, this is the only attribute of God that's used in the superlative like this. It's the only attribute of God that's repeated three times like this. Author Paul David Tripp writes, holy, holy, holy is meant to stretch the boundaries of your imagination. Whatever you think of when you hear that God is holy, you need to know that God is in an entirely different category of holiness. He is much holier than you ever thought holiness could be. That's the message being conveyed by these 
angels, by these seraphim here, as they call to one another continually, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. It's why in Revelation we are told that that is the continual refrain on repeat in the presence of God, even now. A refrain that never grows old, that never grows tired, that never kind of completely captures the holiness of God, that even in glory we will continue to discover God's holiness in an ever-increasing measure. Which means any attempt to try to understand even a bit of the holiness of God for us right now requires some level of imagination. Because we don't have anything that even comes close to comparing. Like I know some of you are in relation, dating relationships and you think you know, the boyfriend, the girlfriend, is just almost perfect. They've got to be almost perfect. They're right up there. They're kind of holy-esque. They're fairly flawless, right? Well, they're not. You get married and you begin to see some of those things that allow grace to flow in your relationship as it should. There's nothing in our world that we can compare the holiness of God to, which is why we need to utilize our imaginations. I love the way Ray Ortland puts this. He says, God is not just holy. He is holy, holy, holy. Each word boosting the force of the previous one exponentially. No other threefold adjective appears in all the Old Testament. It takes a unique linguistic contrivance to convey meaning beyond its meaning as the seraphim, I love this, the seraphim strain at the leash of language to say that God alone is God. He's not like us, only bigger and nicer. He is in a different category. He is And this is why it requires our imagination to some degree. In fact, I would argue this is why Jeremy, author Jeremy Pierre writes on this so helpfully, why the Lord has given us imagination so that, not so that we might use them how so often, if you're like me, we use our imaginations, which is thinking about all the things that could happen, like maybe my child will get a terminal disease or maybe... We'll get fired from our job, or maybe our parents will get sick, or maybe our nation will be attacked, or maybe our landlord will evict us, or maybe our boyfriend will dump us, or maybe we'll run out of money. But that's not the reason why God gave us imaginations. It's not so that we might create reality in our minds out of possibilities. Rather, the imagination is used for something else. Again, Paul David Tripp writes, imagination is not the ability to conjure up what is unreal, but the capacity to see what is real but unseen. To be able to see that which is real but unseen to the physical eye. And this is why God has given us imaginations, so that we might see with our mind and with our heart what is real, the holiness of God, but which we can't see yet with our physical eyes. And this holy holy holiness of God is like a bright spotlight that shines revealing what is true, revealing the God who is invisible to the physical eye, but who really exists. And just like God chose to show himself to Isaiah, we need him to show himself to us. Otherwise, none of us would ever see him. We need him to illuminate his holiness 
the radiance of his light into our darkened hearts. Otherwise, regardless of our education or our IQ or our background or our family, we would never see and savor God for who he is. Which brings us to our third point this morning. Isaiah's had this vision of glory. He's heard a message of holiness. Notice this response that it brings about for Isaiah. It brings about a response of dread. Verse 5. And Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's response to this picture of glory and a message of holiness is not, wow, I'm glad that I came from a Christian family. I'm really glad I went to church today. I'm really glad that I'm not as sinful as the guy who lives next door. I'm really glad that I've been a pretty good person. I'm really glad that I didn't tell that lie to my boss this week. Isaiah is undone. Like he completely comes apart when he sees the holiness of God. And then in the light of the holiness of God, he looks at himself and he realizes, woe is me, I am lost. On my own, there is no chance that I'm surviving seeing the glory of God because I am a man of unclean lips. I am not holy. Even one holy. And we all desperately need that. Because it is far too easy to live in life and go through life simply looking horizontally at the people around us and think, you know what? It's not half bad. And making value statements in the dark without the light of the holiness of God shining brightly and squarely on us to truly evaluate our lives. So going into sabbatical, I had this huge list of projects that I was going to get done, like all these things I'm going to accomplish, and I got one project done (laughs) the whole 10 weeks, but lots of great time with family. But the project was built in bookcases that I actually started before sabbatical, so maybe I got half of a project done, let's just say But I was finishing up painting one night, and the light wasn't very good, and it was already dark. The kids had gone to bed, and I was trying to finish using kind of a little work light, which was pretty, I mean, it was like three lumens or something. It was low-powered. And I'm painting, and I had, you know, I would like filled the the cracks and and, all the screw holes and all that stuff, and now I'm painting, and I got done. It looks fantastic. I mean, like, I, this is a Sherwin-Williams ad right here. This is beautiful. (laughs) And then, you know where this is going, the next day I get up and I come downstairs and it's daylight out and the sun is shining into the room right on these previously gorgeous bookshelves and I thought somebody in my household had done something to sabotage the bookshelves. There's paint running down sides in different spots and you can see screw holes and cracks and all kinds of, I'm like, this looks terrible, what happened? I mean, we laugh, right, because maybe you've been there with a home improvement project. But it wasn't until, right, the light 
of the sun shone on it to reveal it for what it truly was. And what can happen a lot of times is we live life in the dark with the little three lumen candle kind of trying to, and we're making value judgments and we're thinking about God as though, well, you know what? I, I, what I did was wrong, or so, yes, I'm not perfect, but you know what? I, I'm not that bad. There are a lot of worse people. I mean, I turn on the news, and I see all kinds of people that are far worse than I am, and I know some people in my life. I have some coworkers who are a lot worse than me. We begin to make these value statements in the dark, and then what we need, though, ultimately for salvation is for the light of the glory of God to shine squarely upon our hearts and our lives as he did to Isaiah. And in that moment, there's not a single one of us that thinks, you know what, I'm not too bad. Salvation does not come without an awareness and a knowledge of both the holiness of God and the utter horror of our sin. And this is what happens with Isaiah. For the first time, Isaiah has dual vision. He can see physically, but now he can see also with the eyes of his heart. And we don't naturally see this way. We're, we're born seen physically, but we're not naturally born seen spiritually, seen with the eyes of our heart. In fact, the Bible says, teaches us that we are all born blinded by our sin. We don't see God for who he truly is. We don't see ourselves for who we truly are. We live with an inflated view of ourselves and an inflated view of our worth and our dreams and our goals and our identity. We may know that we are imperfect, but we don't know the utter wretchedness of even our slightest sin against the backdrop of the holy, holy, holiness of God. Which is why our most fundamental need is to have the eyes of our heart and mind opened by God to see him for who he truly is and ourselves for who we truly are. And if the text ended here, God would be just and we would have been dealt with fairly and Isaiah would have been dealt with fairly. But the text doesn't end here. Because fourthly, there is a work of cleansing. A work of cleansing. Verse 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. If you notice carefully in verse 6, Isaiah does not take the initiative. God takes the initiative to cleanse Isaiah. He is cleansed by the grace of God. And notice also that this cleansing comes from somewhere. It comes from the altar, which is a place of sacrifice. Remember, Isaiah lived in the old covenant era where animals were sacrificed on the altar daily to provide a covering for sin, to, to demonstrate that the wages of sin is death, and so blood would be shed, and that blood was a continual reminder that the wages of sin is death, and that the only means by which the people could be made right with Yahweh was through a substitutionary sacrifice. But now, Jesus Christ 
has died on the cross. Jesus Christ has been the ultimate and is the ultimate sacrifice for sin. His blood was shed on the cross for our sin in the place of all who believe. It's Jesus' death, it's his blood, it's his sacrifice on the altar of the cross that saves, through the grace of God, all who turn and trust in him by faith. So there is a work of cleansing accomplished through Jesus on an altar called the cross for all who trust and believe. So, why would at CCF here our very first value be God exalting? And what does it mean for CCF to seek to be God exalting? So in the last number of moments we have together this morning, I want to try to answer those two questions. And if you're thinking, well, it seems like we spent a lot of time in the text and now just a little time on like the actual priority here at CCF and how it applies to CCF. That's intentional, as you're going to hear in just a moment. Two questions. Why is our first value God exalting? And secondly, what does it mean for CCF to seek to be God exalting? First, what does it mean that our first value is God exalting? If you remember at the beginning, I I used a quote from A.W. Tozer, the most important thought you will ever have is what you think when you think about God. And that is the most fundamental question. Like, who is God and who am I in light of who he is? And because that's fundamental, that's why we start here as a church. We begin with God because he is the most important being in all the cosmos. The most important reality of all realities is that God Our triune God exists. R.C. Sproul writes and puts it this way, ultimately only a comprehensive and biblical view of the light of God's holiness can rescue us from the darkness. As we recognize who God is, we will recognize who we are and what we have become and the Holy Spirit will use that knowledge to revive in his people a renewed zeal for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and a boldness to proclaim that although human beings are great sinners, there is a greater Savior who can rescue us through the gospel. That's why we begin here. Because this is the most fundamental reality, that God exists. And therefore, as God is worthy of our praise and our adoration and our love and our attention and our our hopes and dreams, But secondly, what does it mean for CCF to be God-exalting? Well, several years ago, our statements put put together some elders. How about our elders put together some statements (laughs) around some of our key priorities and values? And if you've been on our website, you may have seen these. These are not exhaustive, nor are they inerrant. These are just some things that we think might be helpful as we think about and answer the question, what what does it mean for our church to seek to be God-exalting? Specifically, the statement that we put together says this, who we worship is the most important thing about our body of believers. We serve the triune God revealed in the Bible, and we seek to honor him by loving and glorifying and enjoying him. And we aspire to have all our thoughts and actions proceed from a properly aligned exaltation of the living God. 
Exalting God should be the aim of everything we do. And you notice that very first statement, this is the most important thing about our body of believers. This is more important than our location. It's more important than our building or our programs or how we do our kid men, how we do youth group, kind of songs we sing, the instruments we use, how long the sermons are, how people dress. Like More important than any of that is the one that we gather to worship. Which means our primary goal as a church is not cultural transformation. And our primary goal as a church is not numerical growth. And our primary goal as a church is not community engagement. And that our primary goal as a church is not even biblical education. And all of those things are good and important and have a place. But our primary goals, brothers and sisters, is worship. whether we're gathering together in here on the Lord's Day or whether we're gathering on Sunday nights or whether we're gathering Wednesday nights in small group or Thursday nights or Sunday mornings or Saturday mornings as men's groups and ladies' groups on Friday nights. Like, when we gather together, our primary goal is worship. It's to demonstrate the unsurpassed worthiness of God. That's reflected in several ways tangibly in our local church. For example, it's reflected in our weekly worship gatherings. Every week when we gather together like we are now, our primary focus is worshiping God. And God is our chief audience. God's worship and his word, it, it determines what our meetings look like. There should be a God-centeredness and a God-focusedness about our gatherings together, which means our goals together when we gather like now on Sunday morning, our goal is not innovation or cleverness or entertainment or three helpful thoughts on life or a, a Christian TED Talk. It's not our goal, which means there should be a, a serious joyfulness that should define our weekly gatherings. Not a flippant joyfulness. Like a flippant joyfulness is like, hey, I found five bucks in my jeans when I was getting ready to put them in the wash and now I'm gonna go get McDonald's for lunch today. But a serious joyfulness. Like what maybe a, a survivor of a car accident who's pulled out of the fire right before the car explodes by someone else. And as they lay in the grass watching their charred car burn and they're being reminded that that could have been me. My life could have been gone. I was that close. And there is a joyfulness to be alive, a joy in being rescued, but a weightiness to that, a seriousness to that. And friends, we are those who have been rescued from death to life. Like we were all on our way, to use Bunyan's phrase, to the city of destruction, and we have all been rescued off that path by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as a church. And by all, that doesn't mean that all of us here this morning, all of you here this morning, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a believer, and we pray that even as we've preached Isaiah chapter 6, God would be also opening your eyes to see a vision of glory of who God is and hear a message of God's holiness to see your sin and to, to turn and repent and trust in him this morning. The glory of God should be evidenced in the songs that we sing, songs that 
richly teach and declare and celebrate the identity and the work of our triune God. Songs that will sustain us 25 years from now through the death of a loved one or when we get a terrible diagnosis or perhaps when our freedoms as Christians are stripped away. This God-exalting should define our preaching and our teaching. It's why we seek to center everything we teach and everything we preach on Scripture, on the truth of God's Word. Because only God's Word is living and active. Only God's Word is without error and fully sufficient. No one who stands behind this pulpit can claim that for our own words. No one who stands up in a Sunday school classroom or sits in your circle for small group can ever claim that about our own words. God exalting means also that our discipleship and our counseling relationships are focused on big God Christians. It means we ask each other spiritual questions. In fact, I would just encourage you today, before you leave and before you jump to, like, what are you doing this afternoon and when do you kids go back to school and how many more weeks till football starts and all the other things we want to talk about, how about asking a question like perhaps, like, what have you been reading in Scripture lately? What excites you about being a God follower right now? What has the Lord been showing you as you've spent time in prayer over the last couple of weeks? How can I pray for you? That we, even as a church family, might increasingly have more and more richly spiritual conversations. Even as we also, yes, have conversations about a variety of other things. Exalting God means also that we send out and support missionaries who fundamentally believe, as John Piper helpfully writes, that missions exists because worship does not. Like the reason Julie is in Thailand is fundamentally so that more would worship the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason you're planted where you are, in the job you are, in the neighborhood you are, among the people you are, maybe in the family you are, is so that more people would worship and delight in and glory and find joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Being God-exalting also means we are serious about planting and revitalizing churches. It's the reason, if you've been here very long, you have heard us say, probably maybe at nauseum, but hopefully... Many of you know it off the top of your head right now. We believe that God is honored with more healthy churches in Dayton than a larger CCF, which doesn't mean we don't want you here, right? Like, oh, go somewhere else next week because they don't want a larger CCF. No, we're, we're grateful for everyone who is a part of this church family. We're grateful that you are here. But by being here, we believe and pray that as God works in your heart and teaches you and shapes you and as your worship becomes more vibrant and richer as you see God for who he is and as he teaches you through his word and equips you and uses you, that you will then be a part of helping there be more healthy churches in Dayton and around the globe. Whether that's going out with another church plant coming up soon, which you'll hear more about at our next member meeting, whether that's uh, being a part of, of, of another church as your job takes you somewhere else and now you're more equipped, whether that's helping to encourage others who will go out, whether that's pouring into our interns so that as they go out to lead and teach and shepherd other flocks, they're more equipped, whether it's giving of your financial resources so others can go plant other churches or can go out as missionaries, can go do the things God has called them to do. Like We all have a part in that. 
And because our focus is to exalt God, it means we are less concerned with perhaps things like trendy places to plant or the latest planting schemes, and we're more concerned with answering this fundamental question, where in our community is God not exalted in a healthy local church? Like, Where does the glory of the holiness of God need to penetrate the Dayton region through a vibrant, faithful local church? And then let's go there and see how we can be a part because God has so richly blessed us. Like I could go on, exalting God impacts our children's ministry, impacts our, our student ministry. Come on Sunday night, just drop in sometime. Pastor Nick would love to have you. Listen, watch, observe, see God glorified among our students. And this means that the primary duty of our pastors and elders is to always remember that this local church belongs to Jesus Christ. And it is God to whom we will one day give an account for the bride of Jesus Christ. You see, brothers and sisters, exalting God isn't just a mission, it is the mission. <laughs> it's the purpose of our lives, it's the existence of our local church. And we pray that as God both watches and works through CCF, He may see that this truly is so. Amen.